I've discussed the idea of this sermon with our parish council and they've said it's okay uh, for me to preach it. Not that they've heard it uh, or that uh, they endorse it, but they get the general idea of where I'm going and they've said that's okay. But if any of you at any time want to get up and walk out, that's fine. Uh, It may not be what you expect from a sermon. For this week I want to share my doubts. I don't mean doubts in the big things of faith. I do believe in the God we meet in Jesus and the Bible. I believe in all that we say in the creeds. I believe in creation, God's incarnation in Jesus, his miracles and his resurrection. I'm totally confident that he will come again and that because he died for my sins, even the sins that I may commit in this sermon, I am justified and will take my place in his family in the age to come. So what is there to doubt? I've shared some things with you over the years that others may disagree with uh, or consider doubts about what the Bible says. I do believe that the first image bearers of God, what we call human beings, were two people called Adam and Eve. I don't think they were the first hominids, but I think that they were the first human beings who knew and could trust in the Lord. But there are other ways of reading the creation stories which might be right. I understand the idea of metaphor, so I don't think that Eve was literally formed out of a rib of Adam. That's a metaphor. Uh, used by God to show that the place of a husband and wife are next to each other in equal partnership. I think it's more likely that the flood of Noah's time was a huge and very destructive local flood rather than a flood that literally covered the whole earth in water, including the Himalayas and the Andes. And likewise, I think Noah took on board the animals he needed after the flood subsided, rather than two or seven animals on earth, including kangaroos and wombats. I am not 100% sure on how to read some of the details of the Exodus, but I certainly believed it occurred, that God did rescue Israel out of slavery in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years or so but I'm not sure on some of the big numbers in Exodus. I believe the main messages of Jonah and Daniel, but I don't think that they are intended to be taken literally. There probably wasn't one person called Daniel. And the lion's den and furnace are metaphors for life under the Greek overlords. And we'll look at that in a bit more detail later in the year. While these ways of understanding the Bible may be controversial in some circles, and they may not worry you in the slightest, but I can tell you they are controversial in some places, I don't think any of them should detract from the majesty of God, his surpassing goodness or his love and concern for us. I do think, sorry, I do not think that any of these ways of interpreting the Bible should lead any of you away from a firm trust in Jesus and his offers of salvation and wisdom to those who trust him. I believe and have only preached that Jesus died 
in our place on the cross to save us from the consequences of our sin. So what doubts have I held back on? My doubts are about how we understand some aspects of sin and how Jesus would answer some of our questions. I do not doubt that there is such a thing as sin and there are thoughts and behaviours that constitute sin. Sin and each individual sin is a personal rejection of God and I'm not going to get caught up in the debate about intentional and unintentional sins because I trust that Jesus paid the price for each and every sin, intentional or unintentional, planned or lazy or blind stupid. I trust the description of sin in the Ten Commandments and in the way that the law, laws of Moses are selectively affirmed and reinterpreted in the New Testament. And I accept the thought and behaviour described in the lists of sins, particularly in the letters of Paul, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy 3 and Galatians 5, are sins and are to be avoided. My doubts lie around what Jesus thinks of some of these individually listed sins and how Jesus might answer some of our questions today. At first, this doubt was a vague mist of an idea in the back of my head. Some things just didn't seem to add up. I know the Gospels better than any other part of the Bible, and I've read multiple commentaries on each uh, of the Gospels. The Jesus I love is the Jesus I meet in the Gospels. I do not doubt that the Gospels are both inspired by God and reliable. The vague mist of an idea finally prompted me to do two things during the second lockdown. Uh, the first was to see how Jesus handles the questions he is asked. So I actually wrote down all the questions that he was asked and the answers that he gave and tried to analyse uh, what he was actually doing. Because I had a feeling that he very rarely answered the questions he was asked in ways the questioners may have hoped or expected him to do. As we had in our second reading, why was this man born blind? I'm not going to tell you. But I am going to heal him as a sign of who I am and what the kingdom is going to be like. Well, I didn't expect that. <laughs> but that's probably a lot better than knowing that the sins of uh, knowing what this knowing about the sins of the blind man or his parents. When Jesus was questioned about the woman who had been married to seven brothers, all of whom had died, uh, and he was asked whose wife would she uh, would she be in the resurrection, Jesus said, "The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come." and in the resurrection from the dead, will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Uh, what type of answer is that? Uh, I like to think that I will see Carlin, my wife, uh, in, the, in her resurrected glory. But what will our relationship be? That's what Jesus was asked, and he doesn't seem to answer that question. 
Uh, and what are angels like? When asked about the woman caught in adultery, Jesus didn't give a straight answer. The law said she should be stoned to death. Jesus said, let any one of us, uh, any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus does not affirm adultery. He has a high view of marriage. But how he deals with us seems to sometimes be different from what we might expect. When asked why he did not fast, Jesus answered with parables about wedding guests and new wine in old skins. And I understand the metaphors, but it's not a direct answer. When asked who would betray him, Jesus did not simply say Judas. He did answer some questions directly, but many he did not. One way we can go with this is to accept that God's ways are mysterious. We heard in our first reading that no one can fathom the greatness of God. But another way is to consider if we might just be asking the wrong questions or asking questions for the wrong reason. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the expert in the law obviously did not ask Jesus, who is my neighbour, to get the answer that Jesus gave, that anyone in front of him who was in need or anyone he could help was his neighbour. The lawyer asked it to find out who was not his neighbour, who he could ignore. And Jesus did not let him get away with that. This got me thinking about how Jesus may approach some of the questions we might ask today. For example, should we as Christians insist that the laws that apply throughout this country should make abortion illegal in all or most circumstances? I don't think so. But some Christians would say Jesus would answer, yes, abortion should be illegal. But Jesus never said what the law of the land should be. Killing unwanted children was legal, common and encouraged in the Roman world. It even had a euthanism, exposure. How modern is that? We can be sure that one who said, let the little children come to me, would have abhorred exposure. But we have no record of Jesus saying what the emperor should do. And what if rather than suggesting law changes, Jesus said, why are people having sex when they don't want to have children? And what are you doing about it? Or if he said, couldn't you reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies by eradicating poverty? I made the world so there is abundance to go around. Why don't you Christians work on that first? Or why do you value sex above my great gift of friendship? How would most people respond to answers like that from Jesus? It's easy for me to answer as I'm an old, white, married guy. But much harder for people who have not thought through these things and haven't thought enough to want a world that really prioritises friendship based on affection, commitment, care and loyalty like Naomi and Ruth, Jonathan and David or Paul and Timothy. They are shaped by a culture 
that so often seems to value sex above friendship, that the act of sex is more important than sex as something special that builds intimacy and long relationships? And how would Jesus answer the question, what do you think about euthanasia? One of our euthanisms. I haven't discussed this with you before because for me it's a really difficult issue. I know people who have had terminal illnesses and for whom pain relief has been inadequate or where the pain relief itself brought confusion and constipation that was worse than the pain of cancer. But I don't want doctors to kill people. And I fear for people with dementia who hear that doctors can now kill them. And perhaps only a few will think that each time they see a doctor, the doctor has come to kill them, but some will. And I know that's irrational, but that's a newly imposed fear that will exist when euthanasia becomes legal. And I fear for the pressures that will be placed on old, sick, frail people to opt for euthanasia. And I fear for a society where it becomes okay to kill old, lonely, sad, sick people. But it's difficult. And you may see things differently from me, and sometimes it's hard to bring Jesus and his teaching in his world into the present. In Jesus' time, they did not have the medicine we have today, so life could not be prolonged by treatment. Some people lingered in pain, but with no life support systems, oxygen, ambulances, pain relief, forced feeding, etc., people just died much sooner. And I don't want to be facile, but Jesus had the divine ability to heal people with chronic health problems. He had an advantage that none of us has. There is prayer. And I believe in the power of prayer and I do believe that Jesus does some remarkable things in answer to our prayers. But every person that Jesus healed, that he prayed for, died. We pray for healing and for more years for people we expect to die soon. And not everyone is healed and everyone dies. How would Jesus respond to a person whose birth sex is male, but knows the only way that they can make sense of themselves is to live as a female, as best they can. As I said, the the problem is that Jesus usually fixed problems. When he met the demon-possessed man at Gennarisat, he healed him, and the man went away in right mind and restored relationships. I do not know clearly how Jesus would manage with someone with chronic mental health problems. I know he would do it better than me, but what precisely would he do? Sometimes Jesus didn't fix problems. When the problem was hypocrisy or selfishness, he pointed out the problem and often sent them away to think about it. But we can assume that most people living with gender dysphoria, which is not a sin, have thought about it a lot and prayed. So what to do? Many churches want to answer the question for Jesus. 
even though he was never asked it. They say God made humans male and female, and although he never deals with the issue of gender dysphoria, he would certainly say that our aim should be to make sure people only live out the gender associated with their biological sex. But would he? Would that be the answer that he gives? Or would he comment on our societies that have been broken apart by greed and selfishness? where the cult of the individual has undermined his plans for communal bonds and understanding? Would he talk about the way that we have constructed an economy and culture that destroys his plan for good sleep and which is hardwired into us? We need hard sleep. That's the way he has made us but where psychiatrists and neurologists say that up to 80% of behavioural problems arise from poor sleep? Would he say that making children and adolescents get up early, thereby denying them the REM sleep that they need, and our dysfunctional families are the problems that should be first addressed, whether or not they are the cause of all our problems? So I don't know how Jesus would answer some of our questions. And second, the thing that was sort of just this doubt in my mind was how Jesus talks about and deals with sin in his recording teaching in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't actually talk about sin much. He affirms the Old Testament laws and intensifies some. The Old Testament said, do not murder. Jesus says, do not get angry. The Old Testament said, give 10%. Jesus says, give generously. The Old Testament said, do not commit adultery. And Jesus said, don't even think about it. Jesus is critical of some behaviour, but he doesn't call it sin. He does not want us to cause others to sin. He wants us to be merciful and ready and to use our talents. But for example, is it a sin to not be ready or to not use our talents fully? Some would say it is, but Jesus didn't, as far as I can see. Jesus hardly said anything about sex that is recorded. He says we are not to lust, that women caught in adultery, that the woman caught in adultery should sin no more. And that sexual sin of a married, uh, of a married person is grounds for the other to, to divorce them. But as far as I can see, that's about it. And don't think it wasn't an issue. Jesus did most of his teaching in the area of Galilee, which was thoroughly Hellenised or Greekified. And Greco-Roman culture was notoriously debauched. Some say sex outside marriage wasn't a big issue in the Jewish circles in which Jesus moved. And it was a much bigger issue in the Greek circles that Paul moved, which is why he mentions it more. And they're probably right. But either way, Jesus, Jesus says very little about sex. It was certainly not the obsession that it seems to be in some Christian circles today. 
when he met the woman at the well, he noted that she had had a number of sexual partners and was not married to the man she was living with. But rather than condemn her for her sin, he gave her the living water and equipped her for ministry. And it may, and that may have led her to um, uh, change her lifestyle. But, but that's not the point of the story, is it? I mean, he could have just condemned her, but he didn't. He offered her hope and a way forward. Jesus said more about greed and hypocrisy, so should we worry more about them? How would Jesus respond to the question of a Christian who is same-sex attracted? Lord, you know that I love and trust you, but you also know that I love this man. You know that I've never been sexually attracted to a woman. You know I have asked you many times why you've made me this way, or at least why I am this way. You know I'm not sexually promiscuous, and I don't go along with the sexualization of everything. I just love this man and want to live with and care for him for the rest of my life. Please help me to know what to do. Many would say that the clear teaching of scripture is that homosexual sex is always sin. And as far as I can see, that is what the Bible says. I've looked at the passages in a fair bit of detail and read many books arguing things both ways with a genuine desire to find a way out. As I have gay friends, and I wish we could care for homosexual people better and free the church from being called homophobic. And as a former lawyer, I can see possible arguments, but I'm not convinced. And I've listened to gay men and, and lesbian Christians say, don't you dare chip away at the certainty that I have that I must never have sex. It's hard enough to live a celibate life without you undermining my understanding of how I must obey Jesus. I've seen that in the Bible and he has spoken to me and this is the way that I am to live and don't you take that away from me. Would Jesus say, no, don't live together because you will be tempted into sin? Or would he say that you can live together and care for each other but not have sexual intimacy as some Western churches have done? But oddly, in an inverted way, that seems to prioritise sex again. <coughs> or would Jesus say, no, since the creation of humankind, I've ordained only one place for sexual activity, and that is in a marriage between a man and a woman. That is what I think the Bible says, but, but I'm not suggesting that anyone should go against that. I just wonder what Jesus would do and say. And what if Jesus' answer was something like, Woe to you, Sydney and London and Berlin and New York, you wicked and pernicious age. I have given you the gift of friendship and you have exalted sex above all other human activity. You have made marriage an idol. I will not answer your question. 
he might. And what are we to do with that? I think it's more likely that Jesus would say, as he says to us all, my grace is sufficient for every need you have. Your true identity is in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There'll be some, perhaps not here, but certainly in other places, who would claim that the views I am expressing here are liberal, as opposed to orthodox or evangelical. That I lack the courage to draw the conclusions that they do. I don't agree. We are all products of the cultures that we live in, conservative, liberal, feminist, or whatever. And that will shape the uh, other questions that we ask. But I'm not trying to reinterpret the Bible through the lens of a contemporary culture. I'm trying to interpret Jesus through the lens of the Bible, listening to how he dealt with questions and listening to what he said about sin. And it's not black and white. It's certainly not as black and white as some people say it is. One aspect of the problem is balancing our personal responsibility to be holy with the collective responsibility we have to each other and to try as best we can to be united in Christ. We can't all just do our own thing. There is one body of Christ and we are to work together as that body. And I don't think continually splitting churches you know, so that we can all go our different ways is the way forward. Uh, in these contested areas, how are things going to play out and where do Christian objectives of unity and love play out? There have been massive fights in the church for 2,000 years. Circumcision, food laws, the dual nature of Jesus, the creed, salvation by grace, not works, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the language of services, music and dancing and the place of women and abortion. Uh, we're good at splitting and fighting. One of the things I, I like about the Protestant Reformation is the way it took away from priests, now called ministers or pastors, the mistaken ability to absolve sins. I have no right or ability to say that something God calls sin is not sin. But I would fail you if I withdrew entirely and said these issues of concern should be worked out directly by each person with God. For God says in the Bible there is a place for the church and a place for ministers. I do not want my doubts to be taken as questioning God's word or watering it down. I'm saying the way Jesus deals with questions shows there is more to Jesus than we see in the Bible. We may access that through prayer, laying out our doubts and concerns and confusions before God, and we may explore them together as church. I don't think simplistic answers will always do. I'm not going to pull pages out of the Bible because I don't like what God says. And I try not to give issues more prominence than Jesus did. As I don't ask people what they do with their money, I don't ask people what they do with their bodies. Now you may not have these doubts, or you may have many other doubts, 
Uh, I certainly don't want to create doubts in you. I guess what I want to say is, if you have doubts, you're not alone. It's, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle with God, as I talked about last week. The leading Christian ethicist, Oliver O'Donovan, argues that learning is possible only if we're willing to risk genuine questions. To look to scripture for answers to these questions, O'Donovan suggests, is what it means to treat scripture as authoritative. And I will keep doing that. And sooner or later, I might find answers to my questions, or I might not. Perhaps there is not an answer, as with the man born blind. Or perhaps there is a range of answers. My main message today is that our doubts don't separate us from God. God isn't so weak or flimsy that he collapses before our doubts. Our salvation isn't in jeopardy. And we can come to him with our questions and our uncertainty. And he will be with us and he will guide us and he will help us. But let us, as his people, love and care for each other as best we can with Jesus as our help and guide. Uh, next hymn is a wonderful response to this. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And Paul, uh, who chose this, explained a line in the second verse, as silent as light. In what way is light silent? And uh, Paul suggested that it speaks of God communicating in silence. His light sometimes blinds us as it is too bright for our eyes, but God still communicates, unresting, unhasting. So let's praise our immortal, invisible, wise God. Please stand.